An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, David Bank, founder, CEO, and editor of Impact Alpha. Impact Alpha provides news, data, and insight to investors who want to both make money and have a positive environmental or social impact. But what distinguishes Impact Alpha is David's news suits. There's less fluff and some damn good information and analysis. That makes sense because David has a long and deep history as a hard news reporter. At the Wall Street Journal, he covered the explosive rise of Microsoft during the Bill Gates era. His book about it was named as one of the best business books by the Harvard Business Review. He then originated the journal's philanthropy beat, covering the emerging cadre of West Coast billionaire, entrepreneur, philanthropist advocates who've helped shape today's public policies with their money. He was a pioneer in covering Silicon Valley and the rise of the digital world, filing the first ever mass media stories of both Netscape, the first popular browser, and Java. In other words, David's already seen run revolution when business, technology, and entrepreneurship and philanthropy changed the world. Now he's looking to both document and accelerate another with Impact Alpha. Welcome, David. Welcome, John. Uh, terrific. You've done your homework. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, David, what's your origin story? I mean, as a reporter, you chronicled the rise of Microsoft to the emergence of Silicon Valley as not just a technology locus, but sort of a cultural and political force. He did a tour as a foreign correspondent based in South Korea. Then he worked to create Encore Careers, or a switch, which encouraged people to do second careers, combining passion, purpose, and paycheck. How does all that come together? How do you become the person you are today? If there was one, you know, occupation noun, I would say journalist, and it, it predates even, you know, all that. And I've always sort of been starting some kind of newspaper, essentially, you know, back in the day. And so I, I'm now doing the thing that I've sort of been doing my whole life. It's just now there's all these digital tools and, and other ways to do it. So I've always had a nose for, I don't know, the contradictions, you might call them hypocrisies and things. And that's always sort of motivated me to sort of, you know, turn over a, a rock or something, or, or just at least try to pursue it to, to some to some conclusion. And I'm having the time of my life now. I get to run my own news organization. I have a terrific team and we're on the story of a lifetime. So what could be better? So let's dive into that a little. Would you describe Impact Alpha for the listeners who might not be familiar with it? What made you start it? And what would be the perfect day for you there as a CEO and editor? Let me just start with what made me start it because I think that'll explain a little bit, which is I was, as you said, a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal for a decade. And I, you know, had charted, you know, sort of dot-com rise and, 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 and but, but, but even before that, a lot of sort of the fundamental technology, I think you mentioned, you know, Java and Netscape and all these kind of things that were laying around in, 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 in the Silicon Valley when I was at the San Jose Mercury News. 
And so I sort of saw how a disruptive idea, just to you know put it bluntly, of the open internet, you know, sort of won out over more proprietary networks and things. And it was a breathtaking moment in history. To, and I just happened to have landed there because I was I was a local reporter at the San Jose Mercury, but I sort of sniffed this this tech story. So I got a great education and all that. And, and then that got me to the Wall Street Journal and I covered Microsoft and there was a whole antitrust battle, as you recall, and, 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 and a whole kind of, again, a sort of graduate school lesson in sort of politics, strategy, tech, et cetera. And I followed the, the, the tech folks. Um, ultimately, I wrote a book about Microsoft and I came back to the journal and I, and, and, and I got to craft a beat uh, that followed the tech folks into philanthropy, essentially Bill Gates being the signal you know, example of that. And I, he, he had been on he had been my beat at Microsoft. And that was a heady time in philanthropy. There was a sort of venture philanthropy wave and whatnot. And there was the Millennium Development Goals before the Sustainable Development Goals and a whole lot of of of, of interesting strategies being hatched and, you know, a lot of money being, you know, had being thrown at things because of the dot-com run-up and everything. And so um, I got the bug, you know, that there were these, you know, exponential solutions to things. And, and, and I eventually left the journal to 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 try my hand at one with a with a good colleague and friend, Mark. Friedman that you mentioned on Encore.org, um, now called Regenerate.org, I believe. A terrific idea around another exponential wave, which was the, the aging demographic, right? And this long wave getting to the, or, the origin story of Impact Alpha. One of my assignments was go start an impact fund. I don't think we called it an impact fund because there wasn't such a thing at the time, but go start a fund or, or, or investigate how we could start a fund so that we could invest in companies that were built around this thesis of this aging population and, and, the, and all the opportunities in training and education and internships and fellowships and, 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 and matchmaking and all kinds of things. And so, of course, I found my way to SOCAP because uh, I'm here in San Francisco and, and met people who were doing this. And of course, I had to cadge my way in as a reporter, you know, on a free press pass. So I, so I, so I, I had to go interview a few people. So I was interviewing everybody and trying to find out what was going on in this world of impact funds. And um, somebody said, you're the only reporter we've ever talked to. Nobody's interested in this stuff. How come there's no other reporters here? And that sort of rang a bell. And uh, eventually, you know, assigned myself to the beat of impact investing as it was coming to be called. But I thought it was fascinating. I thought, you know, from my, you know, that, that it was, you know, a whole new sort of financial system being, being invented and, and, and lots of new interesting ideas. That reminded me of the tech ideas. That's the point. And I thought, okay, that, that's my beat. Can you give us some examples of investors who are doing impact investing well or deals? What are some of the success stories you've come across recently? We've been talking a lot recently with Ami Patel at Elevar, um, which is a sort of on, I think, their third or fourth fund, an emerging markets manager, mostly in India and Latin America. And a very good thesis around meeting the needs of low-income consumers as a growth market in you know, emerging markets. And that if you can have, they have a sort of notion about a customer flywheel of success, increased better products at lower prices or increased livelihoods and, and, and literally income. And if you have that, if your, if your product delivers that, then your business will, will, will prosper too, because that's a huge and growing market. So like those kinds of theses we like, where there's sort of a, a flywheel to a sort of huge, huge market and they've delivered over, you know, a number of funds. Another example is, you know, we, we like the family office of Kenny Arth, you know, Diane Eisenberg's family office, they have a, a different thesis, but it's, you know, it's very consistent and it's very strategic, which is what they call impact first capital preservation. And it just says that there's a certain category of, of, of investments that need essentially below market, but, but, but not risky, you know, very stable, but not, you know, double digit returns. 
Um, and that if you're a rich person, as Diane Eisenberg is, that's fine because you do, you, you make your own choices about what kinds of returns you want to take. And she, she invests in a lot of sustainable agriculture in, 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 in vulnerable countries and that sort of thing that returns, you know, good, good returns, perfectly good investments, but are not going to make anybody any more money. But as she says, she's already got a lot of money. So people who have sort of the courage of their own convictions to do a sort of strategy, we, we find compelling in the sort of tech, you know, impact tech world. We like, you know, 50 years and, and Seth Bannon. You know, he has a, a sort of, you know, try to bridge the sort of exponential again, um, sort of ideas in, in, in tech to, you know, effectively solving big problems, you know, sort of big, big challenges mean big businesses kind of, kind of idea. One of their, I think, key investments that's kind of been a unicorn, an impact unicorn, which is not so well known as Solugen down in Texas, which does like uses microbes to produce chemicals without any petrochemicals, right? So you can sort of eliminate the oil from petrochemicals and sort of ways. So. These kinds of things that if they get up to scale are obviously huge and, and, and game-changing. Kapoor Capital out here in Oakland, you know, Mitch Kapoor, who I knew in my, you know, as a tech reporter, and then I was very happy to know, you know, him and Frida again on the, as uh, in the impact, you know, world and, and local as well here. And again, a very consistent thesis, you know, empower black, you know, and brown communities and, and, and founders, you know, solving issues that they know about because of their you know, lived experience. And a lot of, again, block power, I think people starting to know is a very interesting company based in Brooklyn that decarbonizes like old line, you know, buildings with low-income residents, you know, that are in every city in America, you know, all over the place that if you're really going to decarbonize, you better decarbonize everywhere, not just in the, you know, 1% districts. And so that means every building needs heat pumps and insulation in the windows and, and, and electrification. And again, it saves money. It's better, you know, better air quality. It's, it's got all kinds of co-benefits and, and it pencils out because of the savings and stuff. So you just got to finance it. And he's done that with Goldman Sachs, but Kapoor Capital stuck with him early and got him to Goldman Sachs. So, so again, turning these things into solutions that, that, that work. Bitwise is another one they have. It's more about job training. So I could go on. I just want to explore one aspect of what you said, because we have a lot of financial advisors and institutional investors who listen to the podcast. Nothing I said should be construed as an offer to... Da, 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 no, da, da. no, not that. But, but Dan <laughs> Eisenberg, there is this feeling that impact, since the goal is to have intentional impact, involves concessionary return or extra risk. And I keep on trying to explain to someone, no, that's sort of blended capital and you can do that, but there's tons of impact that doesn't involve that sort of trade-off perhaps. So, but you're the expert. So let me ask you, is that true? What's the trend? Is it more concessionary? Is it more market? What's going on? There's a spectrum of capital, obviously. I mean, this is sort of the sort of canon in the, in the field now. There's a spectrum of capital. And the point is to know where you are on the spectrum and what your return expectations are. There is an impact opportunity, an impact strategy, or a more, I put it this way, a more impactful strategy in every asset class, in every geography. And, you know, and you can find it if your intention as an investor is to look for it. So you just be the investor you are and do it with more impact. And if everybody moves one erg, you know, then the whole thing will move one erg. And so we take it sort of in that context. Now that's a little flippant. I will say there are trends towards, for example, we talked earlier about the pu public markets. I think that's a, debate that's raged for, for a long time, you know, can you get any impact in public market? The, the con side says, no, all the money is fungible. That's so liquid that your little, your little contribution doesn't change anything. And therefore, no, the, the pro side has its, its arguments. What we come down to is 
do what you can and make stuff make stuff happen. And when things happen, we'll see we'll see you know where corporations have landed. And we do think that there's you know I saw a poll just the other day that sustain for corporate executives that sustainability is their top goal. It was even like and who knows the validity of the sample, et cetera, but that at least there was a sustainability was driving their corporate sustainability was a higher goal than their financial performance. I don't really believe that, but at least it was high on the list and corporates are spending money to get, you know, climate ready and, and all sorts of other things. And so this sort of public markets is, a, is, is where the, is where the money is going to be spent on if, if this if this transition happens, it will be because corporations change their procurement and spending and supply chains and everything else. And so therefore, they are public companies. And, you know, you got to be in that mix. And that's where the, the money is in the markets. And that money has to be that everybody has to be rowing in in the same direction. So we're like, go for it. All these public market strategies, so they're moving more towards impact away from just simply ESG, or, you know, not so simply ESG, but they're moving, I think, towards if you think about a trend. People are starting to say, how do we measure real impact, not operational efficiencies, as it were? How much of our actual business is based on selling goods and services that contribute to the, say, low carbon and inclusive economy transition? And companies start to report on what's called revenue materiality, as you know, which I like as a sort of measure because it says our real business is based in this. People point to companies that are selling electrical equipment, Schneider Electric as one, and, and people point to... Other companies that are, uh, you know, John Deere has is, is got a big investment in precision agriculture that's, you know, sort of climate ready agriculture. So are they basing their business on a trend that you can tell is, is going to be a big trend and, and therefore that's a better buy? All that's to say that's people, I don't think I asked you quite the answer your question about concessionary, which is, which is a long way of saying people can also take their returns in, in the impact. We, we always say if there's a two by two, you should outperform on either finance or impact, or both, but not neither. Um, it's, and, um, and so people can take their, their, their returns as, as higher impact. And again, we, we've been part of a sort of effort to rebrand concessionary or below market or subsidized as catalytic. Often there's, as you said, blended finance. There's a sort of portion of the deal, whether it's risk mitigation or, or, or credit, enha credit enhancement or returns, literal returns enhancement that brings in some other investor or some other debt or, or what have you, and that that's helpful to getting the deal done. Um, in some cases, um, we mentioned that you mentioned Diane Kenny, or some cases she's been the catalytic investor to bring in the U.S. government. And she's like, I'm guaranteeing the U.S. government? About five years ago, you wrote a story about how Bill Drayton, one of the mm -hmm. earliest social entrepreneurs, hated impact investing. And I've heard other people say similar things. The economic and political system is corrupt. It needs to be changed. Everything's just perpetuating the status quo. And so there's this argument between those who believe in capitalism and those who believe got to be replaced by something else. And it surfaces frequently. And, and I will just declare my interest. I'm a markets guy um, and an incrementalist. And my view is that markets, after all, are social constructs. And so I don't believe in the old status quo the absolutist, which is markets are the answer. But I think we're moving towards markets are helpful and part of the answer. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say in terms of all these spectrum yep. of how capital goes. So let me ask you a structural question. How would you improve markets mm. to make this spectrum of finance risk return 
desires more explicit and more scalable? <laughs> John, this is a question I asked. This is I, I asked you. <laughs> you wrote we've written books on this on this whole topic, so <laughs> this is no fair. But um, yeah, that was an interesting story about Drayton. It was just I was just starting Impact Alpha, maybe maybe even before or something. I was thinking about it or something, and so I'm I get an audience with the great Bill Drayton and and the person who had helped set it up. I had known him as a reporter, and I had interviewed him many times at the Wall Street Journal, which is why why he had. Um, wanted to see me, but the, the person who was sort of the, you know, the intermediary says, you know, I tell them what I'm doing and, and they say, don't mention impact investing. Bill hates impact investing. And so I go down there and I, and I have our meeting and we're talking about sustainability and finance and, 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 and all these, you know, disruptive technology and innovation and everything. And eventually he says, you're talking about impact investing and I hate impact investing. <laughs> And but but the reason he was, hates it was, was <laughs> philosophic. I mean, it's one of these markets don't work things. And we're saying markets. No, 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 no. That was a different, he had a different, he had a different, you, you, don't underestimate Bill Drayton. He was saying, go for the systemic change. It was actually much more in your direction, John. It was, he was, so don't do a series of deals that, you know, might have some plausibly, you know, better impact. Change the way finance works, change the way innovation works, change the way good ideas get funded, that sort of thing, right? So, so and blow it open essentially at a system level. So to your, this is a, way, a long way of saying, I think um, you, you've been a, a, a teacher of mine on this, but I, the, the, the phrase that keeps coming back is universal ownership. And when we were start, starting to think about how to cover, you know, institutional investors, you know, big pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and things, and what's our sort of impact angle there. And I got very keen on this notion of universal owners, the ones who, you know, own big enough chunk of the market that they essentially own the market and therefore they have some stake in the market and at a system level, systemic risks affect them. And I think you're the, 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 the author of the notion that's saying they're way more substantial part of your total returns than any stock picking you, you, you might do. Um, so the universe, the big institutional owners knew this, and now you've, you've schooled me that, you know, we're all institutional owners because we all own um, big index funds in our 401ks or what have you. And uh, maybe I shouldn't say all because not everybody has that, but the, those of us who are in 401ks are essentially universal owners as well. And so the, the way that those risks get priced, I mean, again, I'm telling you nothing that you don't know and that you've told me, um, and, and all I know is, is what folks have, have told me is, you know, the way those risks get priced, those systemic risks get priced will send signals into the market over time. And as we said, <laughs> that will eventually result in a, in a different sort of center of gravity in the financial markets. I mean, that's the thesis. I mean, whether this really plays out in any kind of time frame that makes a difference, you know, is I think the big question. But the notion is that, you know, the sort of center of gravity in the financial markets can, can shift around, the, around, you know, repricing the risks on the one hand and the disruptive solutions on the other hand. And you go put those things together. It does seem to me like in this sort of tech context, I mean, that's just the metaphor I'm sort of see it in or paradigm, I guess, is that there is going to be, you know, one of the things about markets that, that, that is very powerful, John, and I do totally agree with you, is when they flip, they move very quickly. And so it really seems to me tweaking the market mechanisms is the game. I've lately been thinking that our whole mission now in life is just training the AI. Um, <laughs> and that we really have to train the AI in this new algorithm that we're talking about because the AI is going to be running this, this thing and let's get it running on the algorithm that we think might actually produce optimal results as opposed to one that we can demonstrably see is not, not producing optimal results. Buddy, you say that because I actually wrote a memo to a client on uh, AI and financial data this morning. 
And in fact, your old friend, Bill Gates says it's not government or capital markets that will save the planet, but technology. Yeah, I have a long history with, with Bill Gates, first on the beat and then, and then in the book and then, and then, you know, in the, you know, long, you know, afterlife and of the, of, of the, of the foundation strategies, which have been central to so many of these initiatives, public global public health, as we now know it, you know, would not as a, as a field of uh, ambitious field of, you know, maybe, maybe pandemics would have brought some people into it, but, the, but you know, a lot of that was created by the, the money that the Gates Foundation put into it. So I have a ton of respect for, for, for the role they played. I will say that, you know, with my reporter hat, I, I don't think that tech, I, I don't think Bill Gates believes just that technology argument anymore, put it that way. So I think that's been sort of just, I don't know, disproved in some way, but it's partly been disproved by say vaccines, which the Gates Foundation was very keen on setting up a global distribution mechanism so that poor countries would get vaccines on a, on par with developed countries, with richer countries. And it was, you know, primed to go into, to be deployed for the pandemic and, and it was deployed and it essentially didn't work or it didn't work very well. So that just to say, you know, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, which, which we've written about and, and others, but, but it's to say the technology existed, the vaccine existed, but it didn't solve the world problem without all the rest of the stuff. And it's not, you know, and it's partly distribution channels and, 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 and mechanisms and whatnot, but it's more important will and mobilization and power. And so I guess where I've come down on this technology, you know, notion is that there's power, you know, there's fundamental power dynamics that at play and, and vested interests and all the rest that make that, that the technology always gets deployed through or, or adapted by. And so if you don't sort of deal with the, the power dynamics, you can have all the great technology and it'll be either some, you know, dystopian horror show or, or, or something else. But it, you know, if you do engage the power dynamics, there are lots of opportunities in the technology. There's huge opportunities in technology. That's why I got into it. That's what turned me on about technology. And I was one of those tech utopians, you know, back in the day, seeing, you know, the interconnected world. But I would say that, you know, reality has, has proven out that you better take on, on those power dynamics and, and turn this, you know, these tools to, to again, to, to the optimal outcomes, you know, that, that we're talking about. So again, here comes AI. Interesting. I think it's an interesting way to think about it. Tell, tell me more about like who controls the power dynamics. How can someone affect it? Are we talking about government? Are we talking about lobbying? Are we talking about religion? Are we talking about so, social construct? Who gets to influence how technology is used? That's a big question. There's the out of control thesis. And essentially that's, everybody's been shouting that from the rooftops just the last few days on AI. So maybe the AI gets the control who, how technology gets used is the answer to the question. So that's the, that's the dystopian <laughs> and singularity plus machines take over the world and humans become slaves and the end of the existence. Right. And I would say so I was, I would say I was never an adherent of that, but now people who were not adherents of that, in fact, are now becoming adherents of that. So there is something to be, to pay attention to, whether that's the way it plays out. But again, I, I don't think that's actually the, the answer we were No, my for. question is, is how does one control, what are the power I, dynamics and how, and how does one influence them? Unfortunately for folks who want the magic bullet, I think it's like a really long and hard slog. However, I think the rewards of that slog are self-reinforcing. So I think there are, you know, what in tech terms they would call positive returns to scale. And I think as this revival, you know, you can think about it in the U.S. context as, you know, Inflation Reduction Act times CHIP Act times, times Infrastructure Act, you know, and times impact investing or, 
or other money uh, coming in to start, you know, thriving small businesses in 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 in, in livable towns with with healthy schools and and that as people see that the, the those solutions working, they get in a better mood, they're less cranky and divisive, and they start realizing that it, you know there's a green future that's going to be good for, for for them and their kids, and um, that plays out all over the country, and everybody takes a breath, and and corporations see that that's where the growth is. You know, that's the fantasy world, right? But it's not that far from what you know. It's not like we don't see it happening. It's not like we don't know essentially what the elements of making that happen are. It's not some great mystery. And to my mind, you know, there's a better there's a better way, as it were. In the tech context, it's always like there is this sort of Clay Christensen innovators dilemma, the whole sort of canon around all that. And the good enough solution starts at the fringes and kind of works its way. And it's sort of too marginal and insignificant to worry about for the incumbents. But over time, either some crisis hits the incumbents or some tech breakthrough pushes the, the, the insurgent. And, and all of a sudden, there's a, new, there's a new balance in the marketplace. And again, that's why markets are very good, because they can flip very fast. And so I think I went into in the same kind of tech utopian way. I think impact investing was kind of that wedge in the, wedge in the machine. But now I've sort of come back to thinking, no, it's much more <laughs> brutally long, hard slog than that. And, and that it involves communities, it involves workers, it involves families, it involves young people, it involves old people, and it involves a lot of intentionality, I would say. You know, we, we, we call them agents of impact. We sort of round everybody up into, into an identity, which is, you know, people who are trying to, like I said earlier, take what they're, you're doing and do it one or two steps more impactful, and that's going to move the, move the machine. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Getting outside, mountain biking a few days a week and walking the dog a lot and getting outside and, and in the garden, you know, which has now had a blissfully a wet, wet year. So everything is blooming here. What music do you listen to? I knew you were going to ask that. And I'm so bad at this because I'm kind of, okay, so let me just confess. I was thinking about, I'm about to go on a little bit of a road trip uh, for, for, and getting a, a week off actually, which I'm very excited about. And so I was thinking about sort of road trip music uh, is sort of my genre, right? So it's, you know, it kind of, I'll confess, you know, there's some Grateful Dead in there. <laughs> there's, there's, there's kind of, I suppose it's Boomer, the Boomer, the Boomer road trip canon is kind of my, 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 my part of, part of my thing, but I'm trying to branch out. I mostly take people's recommendations and go with it. What does Boomer road trip music entail? You finally got away from work. Um, in my case, I got a new EV, which I'm very excited about, and which is a little dicey these days still to take on a long road trip, especially when you're you know far from chargers. And so we had to map out the chargers. It's got it, but it happened to have a great sound system. So you're on the open road in your in your EV with a week off. Life is good. It's that kind of music. Where are you going on your, on your road trip? We're going to a place I've wanted to go for many years, and it's in the southeast corner of Oregon. It's the Owyhee River, O-W-Y-H-E-E, -E, and it's undammed, so you can only run it during certain times in the spring. And I'm never free or, you know, our kid in school, that sort of thing. I've never been able to do it. So this year I finally was able to do it. And it's, it's very rare that it runs this late. But as you know, it's been a lot of water out here. So it's a, it's a rare year where the Hawaii is running and I got myself and a, and a, and a buddy onto a, a, a trip there and I couldn't be more excited about it. It's kind of a unknown sort of mini Grand Canyon kind of ro rolling through for, for, for four or five days. And it's going to be. This is rafting or? Rafting, yeah. Cool. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? So last summer, 
my, my one week trip was a, a bike trip from Northern Portugal to uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And as everybody knows, that is where people go on their pilgrimage to, um, to Santiago, the St. James. And I hadn't really been thinking of it as a pilgrimage. I thought of it as a bike trip, but, uh, that's the route I was on and it was beautiful. And you know, you're going along the coast, you're going up into the hills, you, you know, you can't help but be transfixed by it. I was by myself and I realized I was on the way, as they say, on El Camino. Everybody has their, their Camino story and it's, they're sort of either cliche or, or, or touching, depending on your perspective. But my Camino story was that um, I realized, of course, that I was on the way and that a lot of what we were talking about, I think at the top of this podcast, you know, was a source essentially the way that I was on, right? I was, I got, I got this great gift to be able to, to do what I do. And so I would say that, you know, and everybody has their, their, their story. And so I think what the, the whole metaphor of the pilgrimage and the way, you know, comes is, you know, find your true self and, and live from that and find that and see that in other people and, and connect to them from their true self. And if everybody sort of does that, we'll all sort of be on the way together and it'll, you know, be okay because we're all kind of operating from our true selves with each other. And so there's, it's sort of like, gets very simple as you go sort of go mile by mile and stuff. And you just realize, you know, it's not any much more complicated than that. People all have it in them. And, and, um, if everybody could, you know, sort of have that, you know, experience, we'd all be okay. Thanks. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik, with our special guest, David Bank, founder, CEO, and editor of Impact Alpha, talking about everything from the old days of Microsoft to dystopian and utopian, perhaps, um, technology and finding your own true way. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.